This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is brought to you by Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price, because everyone deserves a great night's sleep. Get $50 off any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash galaxy and entering the promo code GALAXY. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 267 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is David Bishop. From 1996 to 2000, he was the editor of 2000 AD, the UK's leading magazine of science fiction comics. Together with Carl Stock, he wrote the nonfiction book Thrill Power Overload, 40 Years of 2000 AD, which we'll be talking about today. He's also written for comics, television, and computer games, and is the author of 20 fantasy and science fiction novels, including books set in the worlds of Doctor Who, Warhammer, and Nightmare on Elm Street. He's also currently the director of the Masters in Creative Writing program at the University of Edinburgh Napier. And today's show is brought to you by Casper. If you need a new mattress, just head on over to casper.com galaxy and order today. The mattress industry is famous for forcing consumers to pay high markups, but Casper cuts out the cost of resellers and showrooms and passes that savings directly on to the consumer. Your Casper mattress will be shipped to you in a small box, and all you have to do is open up the box and watch as the mattress naturally expands to its full size. Casper mattresses are made of supportive memory foams for a sleep surface with just the right sink and just the right bounce. Plus, their breathable design helps keep you cool and comfortable all night. I've been sleeping on a Casper mattress for over a year, and let me tell you, your first night on a Casper mattress will make you feel like you just stopped by the Hall of Justice and spent some quality time in the sleep machine. You'll want to throw out your old mattress like it's a copy of the Judge Dredd movie from 1995. So just head on over to casper.com galaxy and order today. You have 100 days to try out the mattress, and if you decide not to keep it, Casper will give you a full refund. Free shipping and returns to the U.S. and Canada. Terms and conditions apply. So remember, the address is casper.com slash galaxy, and you should also use the promo code GALAXY, which will get you $50 off any mattress, and also let Casper know that you heard about them here. All right, so now let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with David Bishop. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, pleasure to be here. Okay, so I told you that I just read Thrill Power Overload, and before that, I was honestly not too familiar with 2000 AD. And what really got me interested in it was in the last year or two, I interviewed Alex Garland and I interviewed David Mitchell, and they both mentioned what a big influence that it had on them growing up. And mm-hmm. so that kind of got me curious about it. And then so then when I saw that there was this book about the history of the magazine, I was really intrigued by that. And I really enjoyed it. And I really I had no idea how important 2000 AD had been for the development of comics and movies and science fiction. And so I'm just really glad to be able to get you on the show to talk about it. And I think a lot of American science fiction fans are probably in the same boat that I was, where they don't know too much about the magazine. So I'd like to start out and have you just tell us a little bit about just how did 2000 AD get started? Just where did it come from? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so 2000 AD, is, uh, it's been running for 40 years. It launched in February 1977. Now, 77, of course, is a big year for science fiction across different media, Star Wars, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. What had actually happened is the company that originally published 2000 AD, uh, they were called IPC, 
an editor who worked for IPC, a guy called Kelvin Gosnell, uh, approached management and said to them, because he was a huge uh, science fiction fan, uh, particularly novels, uh, but he said, science fiction is going to be the next big thing. This is like back at the end of 75, the start of 76. He said, trust me, science fiction is going to be huge in the next couple of years because he knew Star Wars was being made. He knew that, you know, Spielberg, the guy who made Jaws, was making a science fiction film. It was going to be the next big trend. And IPC uh, published comics for specifically aimed at girls and comics specifically aimed at boys. And they had had success uh, for decades doing that. But most of their titles were dying out by the mid to late 70s. And so Kelvin proposed this idea, why don't we do a science fiction comic? But rather than jump on the bandwagon as it's going by, why don't we get ahead of the curve? Why don't we launch a science fiction comic and get it ready now so it's out at the start of 1977? So when all these big science fiction films comes out, came out, then uh, we'll already be there. We'll be in the marketplace. We'll have established ourselves as the premier British uh, publisher of science fiction comics. And that's what they did, essentially. Um, they got uh, an editor and writer, a freelance writer called Pat Mills, who had already been writing comics uh, for most of the 70s by this point, and who had successfully created and launched two other titles for IPC. So they asked Pat to create a science fiction comic, um, and he invented, with the help of John Wagner and various other people, um, 2000 AD. And it was launched, like I say, in February 1977, and uh, and is still going strong uh, 40 years later, which is remarkable. Hmm. And it sounds like this group of people, they had sort of a kind of a punk or rebel or anti-authority attitude. Um, you talk about there was this comic called Kids Rule OK, which features what looks like a teenager with a chain beating a policeman. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's... Uh... The, there was a Pat launched a title in 1976 called Action. Now, uh, I should explain. British uh, comics are a little different from American comics. Uh, you know, things like uh, Captain America and uh, uh, Spider-Man and Fantastic Four and Batman, they're principally sort of one story per issue comics and they're published monthly. British comics are quite different. Uh, they're published weekly or certainly up uh, at this point in the 70s, they were published weekly instead of monthly, so four or five issues a month. And they were anthology titles. They would have four or five, even six stories in every issue. So they would be serialized. So you would have a story that would run over, let's say, eight weeks, eight issues, and you would get it in chapters, uh, much as we do today with sort of, you know, four-part issues of, I don't know, Batman that then get collected as a trade edition. It's a graphic novel. Well, that's what British comics were doing, but they would have six or seven stories in an individual issue. Um, so Pat uh, created this comic called Action in 1976, and it was kind of notorious. In fact, it just was notorious <laughs> um, because basically what it did in Action was they took sort of popular uh, films and concepts and uh, tropes of the day and gave them an action spin. They sort of turned up the level of ultraviolence so they took Jaws and they turned it into a strip called Hookjaw, which is about a very angry shark. Stay with me on this. A very <laughs> angry shark, which somebody tries to harpoon and it gets the hook stuck in its jaw, hence the name. Um, and then it goes around eating and attacking people. But 
it wasn't just Jaws with a hook stuck in it. What made it different from Jaws is the fact that it had this environmental theme going on, this environmental subtext under the surface. So Hookjaw attacked men, always men, uh, who were trying to sort of effectively exploit or rape the environment. So sort of people who would put in wells and who were polluting, Hookjaw would attack them particularly. Um, and there are other strips like that. So uh, Action had a, a range of strips, and it was incredibly popular with a readership of... Uh, these titles were aimed at boys aged, say, 7 to 11. Uh, so they weren't aimed at sort of like adults like most comics are now. They were aimed at boys aged 7 to 11. And Action was incredibly popular with its readership. It was selling quarter of a million copies a week, huge numbers at the time, in a declining marketplace. Um, but the problem was when parents picked up a copy of Action and saw what was inside it, they were horrified. And it was the level of violence that was in it. And also this anti-authority streak, this uh, rebellious, anarchic undercurrent that was going below the surface. So yes, there is this notorious strip called uh, Kids Rule OK, which is in a world where most of the adults are dead or have been overthrown and the kids are in charge. And there's a particular cover that got Action into the most trouble and it features a, a young punk, and he's got sort of a denim jacket with studs on it, and he's swinging a, a motorcycle chain, and then there's an adult cowering on the ground and a police helmet next to him, so it looks as if the kid's about to beat a policeman to death with his motorcycle chain. And for some reason, the authorities took badly to this. I mean, I, I can't see why. Uh, no, of course I can't. Um, so as a consequence, um, there was a massive outcry. There was a sort of uh, the equivalent of the moral majority over here uh, in the UK, um, got up in arms, were protesting through newspapers, it got talked about in Parliament, and it was it became this notorious uh, comic, supposedly for boys, and yet it was deemed to be anarchic and anti-authority and ultra-violent. It was called the, the Seven Penny Nightmare, <laughs> one newspaper memorably described it as. Um, so what happened was action was pulled off sale, um, it was kept off sale for seven weeks. And when it did come back in December 76, it was neutered. It was made safe. It was made polite and friendly and nothing to frighten the horses or the grown-ups anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so when they were developing 2000 AD, all of this um, controversy occurred around action while they were building and preparing and developing 2000 AD for launch the following February. So that coloured the approach that 2000 AD took to some of its stories. The great escape clause that 2000 AD had was the fact that it was set in the future. So anybody who was using a weapon, it was a futuristic weapon that, you know, the, the boy readership could not get their hands on. Judge Dredd's lawgiver pistol that fires six different kinds of cartridge. And most of the violence was directed against robots or aliens or monsters so while it was almost as violent as action, it wasn't as offensive because you could shoot all the robots you wanted and the grown-ups couldn't object. It's why, you know, things like Transformers can be as violent as they want to get away with it and still have a, you know, a PG-13 rating. Well, it was really interesting because you quote John Sanders in the book as saying basically that he realized that if they had the police officer being the one committing the violence, people were pretty much okay with that, weirdly. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, uh, it's the strange, uh, situation you have in British society. 
British society, we we love an underdog, uh, we love an anti-hero, and we love uh, a slightly fascistic edge to our authority figures at the same time, which is all a bit worrying, really. It's an odd combination to have. So, uh, absolutely, the idea that the policeman is the one committing the violence was perfectly acceptable to grown-ups, but you couldn't have uh, violence being committed against the policeman in the pages of 2018. Um, but you could have the policeman handing out all the punishment you wanted. And the, the main writers on Judge Dredd, certainly for the first 10, 15 years, were uh, two guys called John Wagner and Alan Grant, both of whom had been quite successful in the US comics scene as well. But they wrote Dread as a partnership for a long time. And the more violent and the more fascistic they made Dread, uh, the weird thing they noticed was the more popular he became with the readers. They kept making him more and more of a, of a thug and an enemy and a danger to society. And people just lapped it up even more, which they just couldn't understand because both John and particularly Alan have got quite left-wing views about a lot of things and a very anti-authority, as is Pat Mills, of course. So you do have this odd juxtaposition. Pat always wanted Judge Dredd to be a hero, uh, but because John Wagner's the, the writer-creator of Judge Dredd, along with the artist Carlos Esquera, uh, he's got uh, an even more cynical view of the world, I think it would be fair to say. So as a consequence, Dredd as a strip over the years has reflected that that level of cynicism, and that really sort of captures the British psyche. The other thing in British comics is that we don't really go for superheroes. We don't really go for men in tights and capes hitting each other. I mean, you know, we can have all the homoeroticism that we want. That's fine. But uh, actually, a character like Superman has never been a success in the UK. We much prefer characters who are anarchic or anti-heroes or far more dangerous. It's why Batman works better over here than Superman ever will. One one interesting thing about Dread is that he never takes his mask off. Could you talk about how that came about? Yeah. Um. Okay. So Judge Dread, who's the 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 principal character of 2018, uh, turned into a not great film starring Sylvester Stallone in 1995. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that. <laughs> oh yeah, and then a somewhat better film more recently. Um. So he's a lawman of the future. Dread is always 122 years in the future from where we are now. Um. And so his his uh, his uniform, uh, because he is this future policeman, uh, was inspired by um, various elements of uh, uh, the sort of fascist Spain. But he rides around on a motorcycle, so he wears a motorcycle helmet. Now, there was no intention originally that Dredd would never take the helmet off, that you would never see his face. What happened is uh, an early artist on one of the strips actually drew Dredd with his uh with his helmet taken off and his face exposed and the editors were underwhelmed. So what they did is they put a censored sticker over the top of Dredd's face and then rewrote the script so that the bad guys went, My God, his face, it's disgusting. It's too horrific. And they said, <laughs> It's too horrific to show to you, readers. So this became what was purely accidental became the sort of unique selling point of Judge Dredd as a character, and that you never see Dredd's face. He is the faceless embodiment of the law. So it all started to, what was purely accidental, became the sort of big subtextual element of Dread over the years. So he is that odd character in that you only see him from the nostrils down. We never get to see Dread's eyes. Well, and one reason you say that it happens like that is because they got the art in in the afternoon and then they had to deliver it to the printer the same day. So they they, they were really sort of 
flying by the seat of their pants to to pull some of these issues together. And it sounds like you really get the sense from from this book that there was a lot of sort of dysfunction and um, uh, conflict and all all these things involved in the early days of 2000 AD. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, uh, 2000 AD was trouble. <laughs> uh, it, it was trouble. I mean, you have to think of 2000 AD. It was, it was edited and put together by, uh, people who were born, uh, either around the Second World War or after the Second World War. They hadn't served in the army. They hadn't been fought in the war. Whereas before that, most British comics were put together by people who had fought in the war, who'd been you know, RAF pilots or tail end gunners or all sorts. So there was this disparity between the people who grew up in the war or who fought in the war and had a very traditional sense of things and people like Pat Mills and John Wagner and Kelvin Gosnell who had a much more sort of post-60s, somewhere between sort of hippies and punks with this anti-authority streak that goes through them like a stick of rock. And so as a consequence, the people putting together 2000 AD they were the young guns. They were the the rebels uh, without a cause in some cases. Um, and they just didn't fit in. And that reflected the content of the title. And so they were permanently kicking against management, getting into these arguments, having these disagreements with the powers that be within the IPC, the company that was publishing 2018. So it was this constant tension and while that caused them all sorts of problems and the comic was nearly closed down twice as a consequence just because of the sheer amount of conflict that it generated and the controversy that it stirred up, um, I think it had and also had an effect that it created a, a sort of an us versus them mentality. It meant that the, the creative team, both inside the editorial office and all the, the freelancers working outside who used to come into the office and to deliver their work, all of them banded together. There was a real esprit de corps about 2000 AD. It was sort of them against the management. Um, it was them against the system. It was sort of two fingers to you and we'll show you <laughs> how to create comics now. We're not doing Dan, Dare and the Eagle in your nicety nice 1950s middle class view of the world. Because comics in, in Britain were designed as mass market entertainment. They were designed mostly, they were read by working class kids. So they weren't for some sort of, you know, uh, toffee-nosed, uh, rich morality, judgmental view of society. They were absolutely for the working class, underclass people and showing people that there were other options. There were other ways to think about the world. Right. Well, so talk about burger wars, because this is one of the things that almost gets the magazine shut down. Mm-hmm. Oh, one of the many. Um, mm-hmm. There was uh, there was a... Um, a long-running strip, a Judge Dredd saga called The Cursed Earth, uh, where he spends uh, 26 episodes, six months, traveling across America. In Dredd's future, there's been a massive nuclear war after a, a crazed president with an overweening sense of his own self-importance, doesn't sound like anybody we know, um, decides to nuke the planet uh, in order to prove his own immortality or genius. So as a consequence, America is basically boiled down to three cities, Mega City 1, which is the East Coast, Mega City 2, which is the West Coast, and then Texas City. And those are the only three places where normal humans live anymore. And the whole of America is one irradiated wasteland in between. So anyway, in the story, Dredd has to travel across uh, the irradiated wastelands of North America to deliver a vaccine to 
basically California. Uh, and en route, he has a series of adventures and en- encounters the crazed people who live out in the cursed earth. Uh, and one of them, there were, there were two one-part stories. Wasn't that two, 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 two-part stories? I'll correct myself. And one of them is Burger Wars. So Dredd and his team, they turn up and they encounter a town, two towns that are at war with each other. One of which is entirely populated by Ronald McDonald and his cronies. And the other town is the Burger King town. And they're at war with each other and they do horrific things to each other. And Dredd and his team get caught in the crossfire between these two. Um, so there was those, that two part story. And there was another two part story where there is a mad scientist and he's experimenting and creating all these odd characters and doing strange things to them. And all the characters were trademarked characters. So you had the Elka Seltzer kid, you had the Jolly Green Giant, who in the UK at least uh, sells corn, sweet corn in cans, and so on. Uh, I think Colonel Sanders is in there as well. So it's just one, these four episodes of Dread the Cursed Earth are a massive infringement of copyright and trademark. Uh, and nobody seemed to realize this. Nobody grasped the fact that this was a legal minefield they had just blissfully wandered into until uh, it was, in fact, the Jolly Green Giant makers who sent a letter saying, ah, no, cease and desist, you have infringed our copyright and we will sue you for every penny. Um, so it got the comic into trouble with management yet again. Um, and so they had to, they issued an apology and they said they would never publish any of these stories again. And that was a rule that held for nearly 40 years. And uh, they had to publish this very odd retraction strip where Dread meets the real Jolly Green Giant who proves to be quite nice and gives them some corn to eat, <laughs> some sweet corn to eat, which is like, okay. Um, and that story was never reprinted for, I think, 38 years. And then finally there was a change in British law to do with satire and copyright. So those, the Burger Wars stories and the other two episodes were recently finally reprinted in a complete edition of The Cursed Earth. Um, the uncensored edition. So thanks to a change in copyright law and legal precedent in the UK, those are now available to be read again. Um, but yeah, that was man, one of many, many incidents of sort of, you know, flouting the law or extreme violence or other things that nearly got uh, the comic cancelled by the management. And so did they not have any lawyers looking over these or management people <laughs> looking over them or anything like that? Uh, well, certainly no lawyers. Um, when you're publishing 32 pages of new comics every week, you don't have time for them to be showing generally at the last minute. You don't have time for a lawyer to look at them and go, you might want to redraw all of this. <laughs> um, so no, certainly no lawyers were looking at it. Uh, they did have a system whereby because it was so uh, close to the edge most of the time, they had a system whereby uh, somebody in the management, uh, a managing editor, had to vet each issue and had to put a tick on every page to say that it had been approved for publication. So there were occasions where the managing editors would say, you can't do this, you can't show this, you can't say that word. Um, so, for instance, there was a scene whereby uh, uh, a, a mad judge called Judge Caligula who rants about the fact that when he walks down the or is driven down the street, there are no crowds to applaud him. Um, still doesn't sound like anybody we know. Um, <laughs> um, anyway, at one point he becomes very angry with uh, one of his underlings uh, in the judge system. So he decides he's going to 
pickle him alive in a giant jar full of pickling juice. And the managing editor said, oh, no, you can't show this. What if a child decided to imitate it and then it got out? We would all be in terrible trouble. And the editorial team were like, what, you think a child is going to to get get themselves a six-foot glass jar, fill it with pickling liquid, and then put themselves inside it? But the management were insistent, so they had to uh, obscure the artwork and rearrange the page at the last minute and basically bodge it to try and hide the fact that this guy was being pickled alive in a giant glass jar in case child any child might choose to imitate it. Mad, really. Yeah, yeah, that's a story that really sticks out in my mind is the giant vinegar, like where would the kids get the giant vinegar? It's just so bizarre. Uh, yeah, and it's... So you're down to basically the, the taste or the sensibilities or the insensibilities in some cases of one person's judgment saying yes, no, maybe. Um, so, yeah, I mean, but equally, I mean, uh, 2000 AD is, is effectively responsible for British comics creators getting their names onto the pages of the comics they were creating uh, because they had this editorial oversight system. So there was an art editor called Kevin O'Neill, who's now a, a, a very well-known comics artist who's worked on League of Extraordinary Gentlemen with Alan Moore and did martial law with Pat Mills. And he was an art assistant on 2000 AD in, in the first year of the comic. So he invented a credit card, a little card that got put onto the start of each story that said who wrote it, who drew it, and who lettered it. And that had never happened on British comics before, certainly not on any IBC comics. They were published, they had no names on them, so nobody really knew who wrote what story or who drew what story. So there were none of this, you know, Jack King Kirby or any of that sort of thing uh, in British comics. They were all the creators were anonymous. And then Kevin snuck on these uh, credit cards and he put them on the issue and they presented it to the managing editor. And the managing editor was like, well, what are these these little boxes with the names of the writers and the artists? And Kevin was like, oh, it's just an experiment. We're just trying it out for a couple of weeks. You know, if the readers don't like it, we'll take them off again. And the managing editor went, well, sounds reasonable, and, and just let it go. And, of course, after that, the credit cards stayed forever. And it that was a fundamental change in how British comics were uh, presented to their readers because it meant readers knew who were writing what stories, who were drawing what stories, and then their favourites, they got to know the names of their favourite artists and anticipate their return. And what it did is it started to shift the power from the publisher to the creators, and the creators could say, could go to a comics event, see all these people wanting to, you know, get their signature or a sketch, and realize that they had some bargaining power. Whereas before they had no bargaining power because they were anonymous. So it started to give uh, power to the creators, and that was the first time that had happened in British comics. Well, right. And so talk about some of the artists who came up through 2000 AD. Oh, gosh. Um, there are many. Um, so uh, you're talking about people like Dave Gibbons, who went on to do Watchmen with Alan Moore, uh, John Higgins, who colored Watchmen with Dave Gibbons and Alan Moore. Uh, you're talking about people like Brian Bolland, who did The Killing Joke. Uh, gosh, who else worked? Um, Simon Bisley, Frank Quitely um, worked for me on the Judge Dream magazine, which was a, a 2018 spinoff title that's still going. Um and then, of course, many, many writers, Grant Morrison, Mark Miller, Garth Ennis, artists like Steve Dillon, uh, Simon Bisley, Dean Ormston, who does Black Hammer for Dark Horse, 
Um, the list goes on for forever, frankly. It's almost any British creator, uh, comics creator of the last 40 years has at some point in their career worked at 2000 AD. And most of them got their start at 2000 AD, or it was one of the first or second jobs they had. You know, Neil Gaiman got to start writing comics at 2000 AD. Uh, Dave McKean did covers for, uh, you know, uh, Judge Dredd, uh, graphic novels before he became a, you know, a major comics artist. So the list just goes on effectively. Right. And Alan Moore is quoted in the book as saying that it was 2000 AD that made him interested in being in comics at all because it seemed more adult and, um, free and creative. Um, it kind of drew people who wouldn't have gotten into comics at all to the field. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, when 2080 was launched, it was not dissimilar to the British boys' adventure comics that had come before. What marked it out was the sort of subversive attitude, the, the layers of subtext that were going on underneath the, the relatively straightforward adventure stories that you could see at the surface. And the other thing that was very significant about 2000 AD is that it evolved with its readership. It sort of grew up with its readers up to to that, up to the point where 2000 AD came along. There was a belief founded on pretty solid evidence that boys and girls read comics for at most five years. So from sort of five, six or seven up to about the age of 11. And then they got interested in other things, other boys and girls drinking, whatever, um, rock and roll. Um, so as a consequence, uh, uh, there wasn't a sense that readers would stay with a comic. You know, you read it for a bit, you grew out of it, you went and did something else. You read a magazine, you read a book, you went dancing, whatever it was that, that amused you and entertained you and where you sought your diversion. 2080, that didn't happen. The readers stayed with 2080. They grew up with 2080. So people who were seven in 1977, there's still a hardcore of five to 10,000 people who were still reading the comic every week, 40 years later, who were growing up with us and who were now, I guess, 47 years old. Uh, and for whom it's just been a part of their lives ever since. And who can, who have this lifelong attachment to it. Um, but the, what are, the other thing that happened in 2008 is the storytelling became more sophisticated. Uh, the number of stories in an individual issue shrank, but the page count for each story grew longer so they could tell more sophisticated stories. And the ambition of the writers and the artists grew with it. A lot of them were influenced by uh, great American comics of the past, but other, some of them had no basis in American comics. They hadn't grown up on superheroes. They had other influences um, somebody like Brian Boland, he emerged from the late sixties sort of counterculture movement in, in the UK. So his influences were entirely different, um, from some other people. So they, it drew in creators, uh, who brought other influences to bear, film, advertising, design, uh, fine art, whatever it might be. Um, so as a consequence, the, the approach to storytelling evolved and grew. And became more ambitious. And that's how you got people like, um, Alan Moore, uh, who sort of, who really, he had been doing work on one or two other titles before he came to 2008. But 2008 is really where he learned to tell huge stories in microcosm that enabled him then to go on and write huge stories in macro, like Watchmen. Yeah, no, it's, it's really, really interesting. And, you know, you mentioned the, um, Sylvester Stallone 
Judge Dredd movie, and I had no idea that RoboCop was kind of inspired by Judge Dredd, that the uh, one of the, the co-writer and producer had tried to get the rights to Judge Dredd and couldn't get it, so then he they did RoboCop instead. Oh, yeah. I, I, I think you go past inspired, depending <laughs> upon how, how legal you want to get about it. There's quite a bit of dread in uh, the 87 Robocop film, absolutely. Uh, make no bones about it. I think on the, the DVD or the Blu-ray special features, they actually show you one of the early designs for Robocop, and it's the spitting image of Judge Dredd. I mean, it really is. And some of the original, the 87 Robocop dialogue could be lifted straight out of Dredd's mouth. I mean, it was just... And the other thing that's really noticeable about Robocop is that uh, satirical black humour that really underpins that movie is pure dread from start to finish. Um, so, yeah, it was massively influential on that. Um, and you see it in other places and video games. I remember in the 90s, I would go into video game development studios. Like I went into Sony uh, and uh, they would take me on a tour around the office to talk about potential of adapting 2000 strips into games. And I sort of wandered into the wrong room and the entire room was plastered with uh, Rogue Trooper images. Rogue Trooper is a, a future uh, soldier character from 2000 AD. And I just went, oh, I didn't know you had the rights to Rogue Trooper. And they went, uh, we don't. <laughs> so it's like, okay, it's like that, is it? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's plenty of examples. Uh, on the 2000 AD uh, website, there's a forum and there's an entire thread devoted to uh, things that have been swiped from 2000 AD over the years, of which there are many. So when the uh, Stallone Judge Dredd movie came out, how old were you, and kind of what 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 was your reaction to it? Uh, well, when it came out, that was ninety five. So I was uh, drains the memory banks twenty eight, twenty eight. I think when that came out. So you um, you, were, you weren't at um, two thousand eighty yet, or were you? I, I was working on on the spin off title. So I was working on the Judge Dredd magazine which is a, a monthly spinoff of 2018 that's been running 27 years now. And uh, we also launched uh, a new comic aimed at younger readers designed to sort of pick up on the hoped-for success of the Stallone film called Judge Dredd Lawmen of the Future. So I edited that as well and some of the other. So I was working in the 2018 offices, uh, but I didn't actually start work on as editor of 2018 till the end of 95, Christmas that year. So, yeah, so uh, my reaction to uh, the Stallone film um, <laughs> uh, gosh. Um, okay. So, I mean, we've been, the script had been coming through, rewrites of the script have been coming through and coming through from sort of 1992 onwards. And I remember when Danny Cannon came on board as the director and was doing some of the rewriting of the script, though I don't think he's credited on it from memory, but you know, directors will rewrite scripts to their own vision. Um, the script got closer and closer to sort of 2000 AD and, and the flavor of the comic. Um, but I remember they got to a point, I can't remember if it was August or April of either 93 or 94, where the line producer just had to go, okay, that's it. You, you can't continue rewriting the script anymore. We have to actually shoot the film now. We've got sets. We have to use them. Um, so we sort of, we did the set tour. It all looked very impressive. Waved at Stallone across the soundstage. Um, and then went back and waited, uh, to see what would happen. And I remember I went to the, the first preview of it. Um, and the, the, there's a, a like a, a title scroll at the beginning 
where it's James Earl Jones and he says the year is whatever it is, 2139. And the audience started laughing and I thought, I didn't realize this bit was meant to be comedy. <laughs> um, and then sort of it's quite an impressive opening sequence and then Stallone rides up on the, the motorcycle and he gets off and a little microphone pops down from his helmet. The audience laughed again and then he started talking and I, I mean, I love Stallone. I grew up on Rocky movies, and so I'm a big fan of Sylvester Stallone. But when he said, uh, I am the law, it sounded like the sort of halfway between Rocky and Inspector Clouseau from the Pink Panther movies. And my heart sank. Um, and it was sort of downhill from there, really. So we, it would have been, it had been this huge hope because They've been trying to make a Dread movie for 15 years by that point. The rights have been optioned since 80 or 81. And they've been trying and trying. And uh, it just it never happened. And finally, they were going to spend, I think it was $80 million making this movie. Sylvester Stallone had just had a big hit with Cliffhanger and with Demolition Man. And we're like, okay, so he's on a roll. This is going to be huge. And uh, And then you saw the film and you went, maybe not. Uh, it was hugely successful and... The UK, it did very well around the world. I just remember seeing the end of year statistics that said uh, Judge Dredd in 95 was outgrossed by the Goofy movie, which was chastening. Um, and it was, it had been, it was, this was going to be the boost that would sort of push 2000 AD sales right back up and make it a huge hit because, you know, Alan Grant was forever telling us the effect of the Batman movie, the first Tim Burton and Bert Batman movie in 89, the summer of the bat and how Batman monthly sales went from 40,000 to 600,000 overnight and stayed there. And on 2008, Judge Dredd film with Sylvester Stallone came out and sales went up 20,000 copies for, I think, three weeks. And then within a month, the sales were actually below where they were before the Stallone film came out. It was actually a negative, had a negative impact on sales to the point where I think we took the cover always used to say 2008 featuring Judge Dredd. We ended up taking Judge Dredd, his name, off the cover because it was kind of box office poison for a while. Well, right. And in the movie, uh, Sylvester Stallone spends most of it without his helmet on, which I guess yeah. was a real mortal blow to the hardcore yeah. Judge Dredd fans. Yeah, that didn't go down well. Uh, no, no, no. I mean, it was inevitable. If you got Stallone, people want to see Stallone's face. They're paying to see Stallone. They expect to see Stallone. So... The helmet was going to come off. Um, but of course, then it becomes a movie in service to Stallone rather than uh, an actor fulfilling the role to the best possible extent. Um, so, yeah. And there were a lot of things that fell out as a consequence. Uh, Mattel were going to make an entire range of Judge Dredd toys, but then Stallone uh, didn't turn up at the New York Toy Fair for the launch of them. So Mattel scrapped the entire range. You know, and they'd spent I don't know how many tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands developing these toys, but he didn't go to the toy fair, so they went, Okay, that's it. God. And and so it went. So it was uh a disappointment, I think it would be fair to say, for many people on many levels. And the reality of course is that it just burned Judge Dredd for years afterwards. You couldn't even have a conversation about Judge Dredd in a film or T V context. It just simply was not gonna happen because you had the stink remained like a far under a duvet. Well, right. And for the American audience, that was the first that, that we had heard of Judge Dredd. So, and that was 100% of your Judge Dredd knowledge was <laughs> from that movie. 
then yeah, you're like, oh, this reeks. <laughs> um, yeah, and that's it. I mean, it's a little like uh, I don't know the the Phantom movie from '96 or the Tank Girl movie from '96. You know, there was a real there was a run of really bad comic to film adaptations in the mid '90s that really stank up the cinemas for quite a spell there. Um, and I don't think it's really until you get Blade and in the X Men movies that comics to film adaptations start taking off again because they were just they were death for a long time uh through the second half of the 90s and unfortunately that judge dread film is partly to blame and yeah it really it killed dread in north america for so long afterwards you we just couldn't give away the character and he's he's the crown jewel of 2018 it would be the equivalent of you know making a really god it would be like if uh uh, let me see. Batman and Robin was the first Batman film to come out <laughs> with the nip, with the nipples and the Amex card. You know, if that had been the first Batman movie, I think we wouldn't be watching Batman movies. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you said you were editing the the Judge Dredd magazine, and then the movie comes out, and then how did you end up as the editor of 2080? Um. Well, after I've been uh, working in the in the comics uh, area for five years at that point and I was getting a bit burnt out I thought sort of I've done my time I, I need to think about moving on if I want to do something else with my career I need to think about moving on and I expressed this opinion to uh, management uh, 2008 was no longer published by IPC by that point it had gone through a rather wobbly period when it was owned by a press tycoon called Robert Maxwell um, and then when he died in mysterious circumstances then it was sold to Egmont which is a big uh, European uh, media conglomerate based out of Scandinavia. So Egmont owned it at the time. And I said to uh, my bosses that, you know, five years was nearly enough and I would like to move on. And they said, well, uh, stick around because we're, we're thinking of rearranging the editorial teams. So uh, a week before Christmas 1995, as the uh, the stink from the Judge movie was Stallone was finally starting to drift away, uh, I was offered the job. Would I like to be editor of 2018? Uh, and I was like, yes, yes, I would. Because it, it's, it's the big chair in British comics and has been for a long time. It's the opportunity to, uh, reshape the comic, uh, potentially in the way you would like it to be, to, uh, bring on a new generation of creators and refresh the comic, which is what any new editor does when they take over a title or a group of titles. You know, they tend to bring in the people that they've worked well with before and whom they trust, and they bring them in to refresh the title and take it in a bold new direction, which hopefully the readers will go with and maybe even gain some new readers on the way. So, yeah, so I, I was offered the job and grabbed it with both hands and said, yes, please. <laughs> and so it says in the book, Bishop's scorched earth editorial policies had earned him the nickname Dark Bishop. Uh, what do you think about that? <laughs> uh yeah, I, I think most of my scorched earth editorial policies are probably from my first year at 2080. So basically 96. Cause I arrived and, uh, and I opened the drawers to see what we had in stock. As of course, it's in the days when artists were still drawing on paper and painting art and then sending it physically into the office before everything was done on computers and emails and memory sticks and what have you, and uploaded and downloaded. Um, so we were still working in physical media at this point in the mid-90s. So I had a look at what was it in the drawers, what we were going to be publishing for the next few months, uh, and my heart sank a little because there was a lot of material of which I was not a great fan. 
So I decided that I needed to take swift, drastic action as editor to sort of, you know, try and put fresh life into the title. Um, and I wasn't very subtle about it. And frankly, I was a bit of an ass about it. Uh, and I got up the backs of several people in the process. Uh, I have attempted to poly- apologize for my youthful exuberance and assholery since then. Uh, but some people don't necessarily forgive or forget quite as quickly as I would like them to. So that's on me. Um, but yeah, uh, my goal was to try and, you know, the first job of any editor of 2000 AD is to keep the comic going. Uh, 2000 AD is predicting its demise has been predicted most years for the past 40 years. I mean, even the fact that the comic is called 2000 AD demonstrates that nobody expected it still to be going by the year 2000, let alone the year 2017. You don't publish a comic, a science fiction comic about the future and call it a name that will become redundant uh, within quarter of a century. But then nobody expected 2000 AD to last. They thought if they got five good years out of it back in 1977, then they would have made good money and that would be fine. But it endured, it sustained its readership, it grew up with its audience, and so it's still going now. So we did have this terrible problem when the year 2000 AD was advancing towards us, which is, what do we call the comic after the year 2000? Um, so yeah, the first job of any editor is to keep the comic alive, to keep it going. So my job was to keep it going so it actually got to the year 2000, and then we'd have to decide what to call it after that. Um, so that was my goal, and I was successful in that, and... We got the comic profitable, which it was borderline not when I took it over, and uh, and grew it from there. So in many ways, very successful. One or two things I wish I could take back and do with a little more subtlety and uh, a little more forgivably, but there you go. I was young and full of my own belief in my own <laughs> vision for the title. So, so why was the magazine so close to going under at that time? Um, a combination of factors, really. Um, declining sales. Um, the uh, One of the publishers had changed distributor, uh, and that had seen basically 20,000 sales dropped off the title overnight as a consequence, and we never got those sales back again. Um, when the new management took over at the end of the 80s, they decided that the comic was underpriced. It was 40p for an issue at the time, which is the equivalent of about 25 cents. And this is at the US at a time when American comics were at least a dollar. Um, it was a high quality product with a low cover price and that was becoming unsustainable. So they started hiking up the cover price very quickly. A feeling uh, that American comics readers will be familiar with over <laughs> recent years. Um, so you got this trade off between it was becoming uh, like you keep putting the price up, but you drive people away because they can't afford it anymore as a consequence. Um, so there was that. Um, and then the cost of producing the comic was going up because it shifted from being predominantly black and white to predominantly color, which cost more to produce. You had to pay artists more if you want them to do work in color. Uh, and also it cost more to print at that stage because we didn't have digital printing. It had to be done with full color films still. So that cost, so it cost more to print and it cost more to create the material. And also, um, there'd been a tendency through the eighties for, uh, writers and artists, once they became established in 2000 AD, uh, DC Comics in particular would come over and say, hey, wouldn't you like to come and work for us? You know, we'll put your name on the cover. We'll pay you royalties. 
which for a long time, 2018 didn't do. So, you know, with the opportunity to draw Batman, have their name on the cover and be paid royalties for doing it, unsurprisingly, a lot of writers and artists went, okay, bye 2018, you can live in the past, we're going to the future over here. Um, so in order to hold on to some of those creators, uh, page rates had to be uh, pushed up. So all of these things had a sort of a domino effect in that Kamok became was becoming less and less profitable through the first half of the 90s. And there was a prediction at one stage that it would uh, fall below break-even by 1996 unless action was taken. Uh, so one of the actions that was taken was uh, I was put in as editor and my job was to ensure the profitability of the comic. It had to make, I think it was a minimum of £100,000 a year, which is nearly $200,000 a year. Profit had to be generated by the comic. Otherwise, they would, you know, turn off the lights and that would be the end. So that was one of my jobs, was make it more profitable and sustain that profitability um, and find a way to do that. So that was the challenge. It's kind of interesting, too, in the book, because there were all these sort of gimmicky marketing strategies that were yeah. tried, uh, yeah. including making Tony Blair kind of a cyborg character. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, we we tried everything. Basically, we spent sort of 96, 97 uh, we were throwing a lot of mud at the wall and seeing what would stick. Uh, we did, uh, we did a whole issue where Ill, all the stories were themed around sex because by this point, our readers were all, you know, 19, 20, 25, 30 in some cases. So we figured they were growing ups by this point and they could cope with something slightly saucier in their lifestyle. Uh, we were wrong, of course. <laughs> Some sex and comics don't really mix that well, certainly not to a British public. Um, so that was a mistake. Um, but yeah, there were all sorts of gimmicks that were tried. Uh, for the 20th anniversary, we did a, a little uh, supplementary comic called 3000 AD, whereby we reimagined what the original strips from the very first issue back in 77 would be like if they were being uh, invented or reinvented by the creators of 1997. So one of the strips in the original run of 2008 was called Mac One, uh, which was a blatant ripoff of the $6 million man. I mean, my goodness, <laughs> it was shameless. It was utterly, utterly shameless. And somehow they got away with it. So applause is all I could say. Anyway, so they'd done this $6 million man, bionic man ripoff back in the day. And we said, well, okay, what would you do with that now? So as a joke, uh, we said, okay, well, why don't we give Tony Blair, who at that point wasn't prime minister, he was still just the leader of the Labour Party. Uh, why don't we give him, uh, basically put like the equivalent of stick a computer in his head that will give him special abilities. Um, and uh, so that's what we did. And it was called Blair One. And it was just a, a three page strip. It was just a throwaway thing. But it sort of it got attention for the comic outside the world of comics sort of newspapers were writing about this the idea of turning tony blair into the bionic man effectively so we brought the character back and then it got us on the news and we brought the character back again and it got us on the news again the, the newspapers loved it the ironic thing was that the the readers didn't love it quite so much so although we were getting plenty of press coverage it didn't necessarily translate into extra sales um so we were sort of we were reaching for one audience and we were neglecting our core audience. And I, I was, I think I was definitely, uh, part of the architect of that slightly wrong-headed strategy for a while. But I was lucky in that I got, uh, a new assistant, a guy called Andy Diggle, who is, uh, 
uh, now a great comics writer, but who was my assistant and then replaced me as editor of 2008. And Andy's thing was, well, you know, all this, you know, trying to get attention and marketing and PR hoopla is fine, but what about the core readership? What about the core characters? Why don't we focus on them? As well, why don't we think about what the readers love about 2018? And he was absolutely right, hands up to him. So that's what we did. We said, why don't we just accept the fact that 2018 is never going to sell 100,000 copies a week again? It's never going to be on in every corner shop, on every spinner rack that you see. Instead, why don't we think about giving our current readers what they love most about the comic, but in inventive new ways? So not just you know, giving them exactly what they expect, but giving it to them in a way they don't expect. So still challenging readers and still introducing new characters and new creators, but giving them a little bit of what they enjoy as well so that then they can enjoy Judge Dredd and Strontium Dog, the old favourites, and then give them new characters like Nikolai Dante or Sinister Dexter, both of which ran for more than a decade afterwards. Um, so it's finding that balance. Um, so Andy was a big help with that and sort of just slightly re- tweaking the direction of the comic in, I think he arrived in 97 from memory. So he was he, he was a big help for the comic, and we did wonders with it after that. And, of course, he was editor for 18 months and then quit to go off and write The Losers for Vertigo. And he's writing James Bond now, I believe. Oh, wow. That's really cool. Yeah. I also just wanted to mention there was just this like jaw-droppingly ill-conceived marketing campaign with the slogan, <laughs> 2000 AD women just don't oh. get it. Oh, please. Oh, oh, I still have nightmares about that. Okay, so what happened? We had a reciprocal arrangement with IPC, who were the former publishers. And basically, we got two free full-page ads in a magazine called Loaded, which was their best-selling title. It was selling, I don't know, half a million copies a month at that point. It was huge. It was like Sports Illustrated or, or some huge title like that but for a British audience. And Loaded was aimed at sort of, uh, well, what we called a lad audience in the UK, what you would probably call, you know, dudes or yeah, like bro, the, bro, bros. the bro audience, effectively. It was very much about, it was like FHM or, you know, the swimsuit issue in Sports Illustrated. That sort of it was the bro audience. Um, so we had these two full-page, full-color ads that were worth, you know, quite like a five-figure sum. But the marketing people who were running the company at this point said, no, 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 editorial team. No, we're going to do these ads ourselves. They brought an outside advertising agency. They had all these meetings. They came up with all these designs. And just before the ads were about to run in the magazine, they decided to show them to the editorial team. So one ad features a woman who's got like a sort of bubbly blonde hair and a ton of makeup on. She's blowing a bubble gum. Like she looks like. Britney Spears after a lumbotomy, effectively. Um, uh, and it said, and it was just like, oh, she, she was saying, oh, why can't it be fluffy bunnies and nice things? And then the slogan was 2000 AD, women just don't get it, which is just terrible. And then the second ad was sort of like a man-hating, sort of acne-spotted, effectively like a well, the worst generalization of like a man-hating feminazi or something. And greasy hair, the full works, dungarees, and the same thing. You know, it's just all male violence, blah, blah. Women, they just don't get it. And we just said, please, for the love of God, don't run these ads. These ads are terrible. 
they say nothing about the content of the comic, but let's leave that to one side. Uh, it's they're offensive. They're offensive to women, and we actually have female readers, but they're also offensive to men who have wives or girlfriends or sisters or mothers, i.e. all of them, frankly. Uh, so please, in the love of all that is holy, don't do this. And they said, no, 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 you're, you're exaggerating. You just don't understand. And we just like, <laughs> and then the ads ran. And our readers went ballistic. They just flipped out. Some of them set fire to their copy and posted it back to us. And we just got abusive phone calls. We got abusive letters. I think we just about onto email by that point. So we probably got abused there as well. And then when we showed all this to the bosses, they said, um, well, no, you can't run any of this material in the comic on the letters page. You can't run an apology. You just have to ignore it. So essentially, they arranged for us to take a load of abuse from our readers, and we just had to enjoy the sensation of being hated and reviled for something over which we had no control, no input, and no say, and which we weren't even allowed to say, look, this, this wasn't us. This was idiots. But no, we had to take it all. So that was a particularly joyous moment. And so it was stuff like that, I guess, that eventually led to you deciding to uh, leave 2000 AD? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was, I think, 98, and I was just pulling my hair out at that point <laughs> and losing my hair as well. Um, uh, and I just, I'd been there by the end of, I think it was middle of 99, and then uh, a company called Rebellion, who are uh, a video games development company, but uh, doing very well. Uh, talked about buying 2000 AD from Egmont, the current publishers, because it became increasingly obvious that 2000 AD and the Judge Dread magazine did not fit in the company that we were owned and being published by. We were, I think it's in the book, I talk about the fact that we were like the surly teenager in the black metal t-shirt sitting at the five-year-old's tea party. <laughs> we just, we just, you know, they were publishing like Barbie comic and Thomas the Tank Engine and and Disney princesses, and we were we were running, you know, Strontium Dog and Judge Dread and sort of you know Future War, and it just it, it it was wrong. We were in the wrong place. So Rebellion came in, they made an offer, and I was thinking, this is brilliant. We'll go to these people. They love the comic. They love what we do. They want to build on that. That's the perfect place for us. They've got money. They've got the enthusiasm. They know what we're doing, and then the deal fell apart. And that just, it kind of broke my heart because I could see that unless something drastic changed, essentially the, the people who were publishing to us at the end of the nineties were just running it into the ground. They were, just, they were treating it like a cash cow. They were milking it for all it was worth. And as soon as it stopped making money, they were just going to take it out the back of the chemical sheds and shoot it in the head. Um, and uh, I lost heart at that point. And so I started to look around for, for other jobs. Uh, and then decided I'll quit and go freelance and, and write, go back to writing my own stories rather than helping writers and artists create their stories. Much as I enjoy that, I felt it was time for me to, you know, actually do some writing and creating of my own. Uh, so I handed my notice in and, uh, the next day I discovered that Rebellion were going to buy it after all oh, the geez. deal was back on. And the day I left was the day that it changed hands, which was complete coincidence. Um, but I meant Andy Diggle, who took over as editor, who succeeded me as editor. He got to sort of the fresh start with the new owners and to, to set the ball rolling to sort of take 2000 AD 
into the the new millennium because this was the summer of 2000 when all of this took place eventually. So so yeah, that was when I left. Well, right, and so then talk about what it was like when the new Dread movie came out in 2012 because that was uh, that was a pretty good movie. It's a great movie. Um, it's one of the few movies in 3D I've actually bothered to go and see in 3D. Uh, because it was worth seeing in 3D. Anybody who hasn't seen it, I hardly recommend the 3D version, which I say about almost no other movie. <laughs> With the possible exception of Gravity, that was pretty good in 3D too. Um, but yeah, it was, um, it's, it's, it's just a great film. It's so true to the spirit of Dread. It really captures Dread in essence. Um, sort of the only quibble I have with it is the same as John Wagner, sort of the opening five minutes where they're out in the street. It doesn't look like the future. Uh, the vehicles don't look futuristic enough. It just looks like they're driving around in a VW combi van, the bad guys. So it kind of looks like where it was shot, which is South Africa. Um, it doesn't look sufficiently mega city for my eyes. But once they get into the, the city block, uh, peach trees, uh, 60,000 people living there, all of that, it absolutely captures the essence of dread. I mean, it's bang on the money. Carl Urban, a fellow New Zealander, kudos to him, um, is perfect as dread. He's got the voice, the attitude, the physicality, the sort of the no nonsense. It's all there. Um, and it shows what happens when the people who are writing and making the film respect, uh, the original creators and want to do justice to the source material, not to turn it into some sort of cod Roman Empire mythic blah blah thing which is kind of what the first Dread film is so it was a, it's a great movie the shame of it is that so few people saw it in America um you know it's like I think it did 12 million in America it just completely died uh not the world's best marketing job by somebody there I have to say but it was um so it's a shame but hey the first Blade Runner movie completely died on its ass as well and that seems to have had an enduring life. So, well, yeah, I, I was really struck uh, in the book where Carl Urban says they they bring him in for a meeting and they say you realize that you're never going to take your helmet off for the entire movie, and he says I wouldn't have come to this meeting if I was going to be taking my helmet off in this movie. That he was really a fan and he really got it. Yeah, yeah, completely. I mean, Carl Urban uh, he grew up in New Zealand like I did, and. We got 2018 in New Zealand. We got it three or four months late because they used to ship it out there by boat. So you would be reading the Christmas issue generally around Easter, which was a little bit odd. Um, but that aside, no, I mean, I grew up reading 2018 as, as did he growing up in New Zealand. So it's one of those things when you, if you read 2018 as a boy of 10 or 11, it just, it imprints itself on you. It's one of those formative experiences that you have. Um, so yeah, he's a complete, I mean, he loves uh, uh, Judge Dredd, and I mean, there's Rebellion uh, developing a, a TV series set in the world of Judge Dredd. Um, from what I've heard, he's not going to be in every episode. I think he'll make cameo appearances. So I'd be, I mean, I have no direct knowledge of this, but I would be very surprised if they're not having conversations with Carl Urban to, to get him to come back and make cameo appearances in the TV show when it finally comes to pass. It's going to take a while. Development hell and all that. But yeah, I mean, he, he, I mean, the thing is also, I mean, Stallone did have a lot of respect for Dread because his trailer was just filled with Dread comics. I mean, it was the opening of the 95 film. Uh, one of the things is the titles is they just, title sequence just shows you covers of old issues of 2000 AD. 
And that was Stallone's suggestion that they do that as a title sequence to establish it in the world of Dread. So he did buy into it as a world and as a character, but uh, he was still going to take the hat off, and that was how it was going to be. So, Well, right, and you say that with the, the old movie that, I mean, it sounds like the director um, really respected Dread and knew it, but then there were all sorts of producers, and they all had conflicting visions, and it just ended up as kind of a, like, too many cooks, I think is how you put it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, Danny Cannon, I mean, again, he's a Brit. He grew up reading 2080. There's a, I think it's in the book, there's a, he drew a little poster of what the Judge Dredd film poster would look like, and it was actually published in an early issue of 2080. I'm trying to remember, I think he's got Harrison Ford plays Dredd in his film poster, ideal film poster version. So yeah, I mean, he absolutely loved Dredd in 2080, but it was, I think, only his second movie. He didn't have a lot of control. He was uh, working with Stallone, who uh, was a massive star at the time and had all the control in the world. So Gann- Danny Cannon certainly didn't have Final Cut. So the version that ended up coming out, I mean, it's, what, 90 minutes long? Any movie that's 90 minutes long, you sort of ask the question, why is it? Uh, how did you spend $85 million and only made a 90-minute movie? That's like a million dollars a minute, surely this. <laughs> Surely you could have got more out of that. So I always, the, the sequences, I remember we, we were given all these photos that were shot on the set. There was a whole sequence with the, towards the end of the Stallone film where the clones all start coming to life. And they had dozens of guys as clones wandering about, moving about the set and all of that never made it into the final cut. So there's, you know, there's another movie in there somewhere. It's like the, the end of the movie, the Rob Schneider character. Oh, Rob <laughs> Schneider. Um, Rob Schneider's character, who died in the original cut of the film, and then they did reshoots to bring him back to life because, you know, it tested badly. So they thought, oh, the comedy sidekick. I know. Let's have him live and bring him back to life because that'll make the film better. No. Uh, or Diane Lane and, and, uh, as Hershey and Dread kissing at the end. That was in the reshoots as well. You just go, oh, you really don't know what you're doing here. But absolutely. Too many cooks. Yeah, I want to mention that with the newer Dread movie that the screenplay was by Alex Garland, who I mentioned at the beginning. And I actually I just went back and re-listened to my interview with him. And he's just incredibly smart and interesting. And from his subsequent work, a, you know, an amazing filmmaker. So, yeah, you know, people need extra encouragement to go watch the 2012 Dread movie. I mean, it's 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 quite good, as I said. Oh, God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, from that, he then went on and did uh, um, Ex Machina. Um, which is the AI film, and he was uh, his screenplay was Oscar nominated for that, and and which he wrote and directed that, and I don't know the ins and outs of outs of it, but I do believe he may have had a hand in directing some elements of the 2012 Dread film. Uh, rumors abound uh, as to what actually happened there. You'd have to ask the man himself to find out the truth of it. Um, but yeah, no, I mean he's a he's a a, a really good writer. I mean, you know, 28 days later. Um, and then, uh, something else, 20, 28 weeks later, and then Dread, uh, and the island, of course, before that. So, uh, yeah, I mean, he's got a great pedigree. Uh, the, he's the, gonna... the beach. The beach, that's it. The beach, not the island. That's a terrible film. Um, <laughs> both of them. Um, but yeah, the beach. Uh, so yeah, he's, uh, you know, he's really talented. He absolutely loves, uh, Dread. Um, and, you know, there was a lot of sequel talk before. Unfortunately, it wasn't the success they hoped it would be. And he had plans for Dread 2 and Dread 3, which, you know, would have been amazing building on the success of the first film. 
unfortunately, what you ended up with is a is a cult classic rather than the the box office hit they were after. You talk about how he actually went and talked to John Wagner, who felt like he was kind of ignored the first time around, and Alex Garland actually went and talked to him and sat down with him and talked about the movie and stuff. Oh yeah, they. I mean, uh, Alex and um, I don't know if Pete Travis did. I'm pretty sure Andrew McDonald did. He's one of the producers. Uh, so they went out because John, John lives in the countryside, like well into the countryside. He nearly lives in Wales. That's how far into the countryside he lives in England. <laughs> so they went out to, uh, Shrewsbury where John lives or on the outskirts of and, uh, sort of had a meal with him and talked about him, what they were going to do, what they weren't going to do, showed him the script. They got his notes on the script. They, res- they rewrote elements of the script in response to his vision of what Dredd should be. Whereas with the Stallone movie, I think they sent the script to, to John and Alan and sort of paid lip service and then just ignored them. Um, so, yeah, they actively sought out the advice of the original creators of the character to try and make it as true to the vision of that while still making their own movie at the same time. Um, and I think it's so much the better for that as a consequence. I mean, it stands up so much more than the, you know, the, uh, the Stallone movie, which had two, three times the budget. And yet, looks like a fraction of the same. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I was curious what you think in the in the later section of the book, which of of the Thrill Power Overload book, which was written by Carl Stock. He says that um, in in some ways, Mad Max Fury Road is like the ultimate two thousand AD film in spirit. I was curious what you thought about that. Oh yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's not inconspicuous is the fact that one of the writers and one of the major designers of Fury Road is Brendan McCarthy, who was an artist on 2000 AD off and on for, well, in fact, he still works for it occasionally. So he worked on a lot of 2000 AD strips in the first 10 years and has come back and has made guest appearances. Mostly he works in film now, of course. But Brendan was working on Fury Road with George Miller for 15 years. So there absolutely is a 2008 sensibility to that film. I mean, those characters, the, you know, the, 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 the bald headed boys in that, they're straight out of a Brendan McCarthy 2008 strip. Absolutely. The whole thing. It just reeks of 2008. And there's a lot of other films like that that really do look like, uh, they're heavily inspired by 2008. You can sort of see the thing, the fingerprints, the DNA of 2008 has crept out into so many other places. Uh, and of course, the other thing is the number of creators who got their start at 2000 AD and then who took that sensibility to the, the North American comics market. So Mark Miller, uh, Garth Ennis, Grant Morrison, Alan Moore. Uh, without those people, you don't really have Vertigo. Without those people, you don't have uh, a lot of the other things now that we take for granted about North American comics as well. Yeah. No, like I said, I mean, I, I just learned so much from this book about what a big impact 2018 had had. Um, do you want to talk about this book, Thrill Power Overload? Just say a little bit more about just is there anything you want listeners to know about it? Um, OK. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. So, I mean, uh, Thrill Power Overload, it's um, what we describe as an unfiltered history of 2018. When people write uh, sort of like the history or, or the, the biography of a comic or a magazine, it has to be signed off by the people who own and publish the source material. And normally what happens is you end up with a very sanitized version. It's the safe, polite, nice version of history. Uh, and you have to wait for sort of the unauthorized memoirs and what people say in interviews to find out what really went on. Uh, Thrill Power Overload 
isn't like that. It's a different kind of book about comics and the history of comics and the the sort of the what was going on behind the scenes, all the intrigue and the the, the controversies and the, the moments when it flirted with cancellation or, or you know being pulled off the shelves. So it's it's people telling it like it is or like it was. So it's very much a warts and all account of history. And I mean, when I was writing the, like I wrote what's effectively the first uh, 30 years of the history. And then uh, my co-writer, Carl Stocky came in and did the last 10 years for the new edition of the book, the the, 40 year, the first 40 years edition. And what, um, what I mean, I think for, for the first 30 years I interviewed, did over a hundred interviews. I think it was like a, a thousand hours of tape I had to transcribe. I mean, it was a massive undertaking. It was huge. It was seven, eight years work off and on. So it was originally published as a series of articles. And then when it was going to be collected in a book, I went back and did another whole bunch of interviews to fill in the gaps and tell more of the story and find out from other people who sort of emerged over the years what their opinion was and their reaction to the original articles as well. Um, so yeah, it really is a completely unfiltered history of 2000 AD. Um, so it's strong language at times. I think it would be fair to say, uh, it doesn't pull any punches. There were moments in the story where I would have five different people who had five different memories of a particular moment or an incident and five different explanations for, for why something happened. And in the end, there was no single right version of the history. So where necessary, I would just put Pat Mills says this, John Wagner says this, John Sanders, who was the publisher or the managing editor, he says this, and Kevin O'Neill, who was the art editor, he says this. You decide what you think is the correct <laughs> version of this history because there is no one version of history, of course. Everybody has their own memory, their own interpretation. Um, so it was an attempt to try and synthesize that into a narrative that presents the, as much as it ever can be, the true story of 2000 AD. So it's, yeah, I'm very proud of it as a book. It's, it's probably the largest single piece of work I've ever done on one project. Um, and so it was, uh, reissued in a new edition, uh, earlier this year. So it's a lovely hardcover, but it's also available inevitably on the Kindle uh, and other devices. Um, so yes, it's, uh, it's, a uh, it's a great book in my humble opinion. Unsurprising that I would say that. And, uh, if you get the hardcover, uh, currently available, uh, in good comic shops, um, or online, uh, if nothing else, it's a deadly weapon in the wrong hands because <laughs> it's about 320 pages and it's quite a stern cover. So you hit somebody with that, they stay here. Did you get any really strong reactions to the warts and all nature of the book? Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, there's one or two creators in particular, uh, who, what's the polite way of describing this? Well, there's one particular creator who said that they would never do another interview again about, to, they would never talk about 2080 again in their life after reading what other people had said about them. Um, they were so angry and so upset by the opinions of some others involved in the comic at the time that they would never speak about uh, that part of their life ever again. So people take 2080 very seriously. They're very passionate about it. Uh, there's one other creator who, after reading the, the collected edition, uh, decided 
that um, I had taken against them. Nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, and then proceeded to badmouth me in interviews for five years afterwards, which was a little wearisome. But um, everybody's entitled to their opinion. Everybody's entitled to their memory of what happened. And um, fair play to them. If that's what they believe, they believe that. Wow. I, you know, I, I asked you, there's also this um, Future Shock documentary, which is a history of 2018. Did you have anything you wanted to say about that? Uh, yeah, it's, um, I think it, it, if, uh, if you don't know 2080, obviously I hardly recommend my book. Um, I think there's a, there's a great documentary called Future Shock. It's about an hour and a half long. And there's all sorts of people were interviewed for this documentary to talk about the impact of 2080 on their careers, but on comics both in the UK and in the US over the past 40 years. So there's people like, there's a Neil Gaiman interview in it. There's uh, Karen Berger, who was at Vertigo for a long time, of course, and now has her own imprint. And uh, people like Grant Morrison and, and Pat Mills and creators who worked on the title. Uh, and I'm in it as well. Uh, so brace yourself for that. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it's it's um, because it's only 90 minutes to cover 40 years of history, uh, there are gaps. Um, one or two voices do slightly dominate the documentary, but then I would say that. Um, so as a consequence, I think the documentary works really well if watch, you read the book and you watch the documentary. And I think the two of them together make for a very complete picture and you can draw your own conclusions from experiencing both of them. Uh, there's a new Blu-ray of the documentary as well, which has got like eight hours of extra interviews and features. Um, when they went to talk to Pat, Pat, who's a man, uh, not short of either an opinion or the ability to express it. I think it would be fair to say. Um, I think they turned on the camera, asked him a question, and then they left nine hours later. <laughs> um, so, yeah, Pat's, uh, Pat's, Pat's a man of strong opinions. That much is definitely true. <laughs> All right, so we're almost out of time. And I did also – the reason that I got connected with you in the first place is that you um, tweeted out in response to my um, – our, our episode on Professors vs. Fantasy – Mm. And you talked about that you have uh, a creative pr writing program that you're involved with that actually is really friendly to fantasy and science fiction authors. So I was just wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. So, yes, I am, uh, in fact, program leader now um, of the creative writing MA at Edinburgh Napier University in Scotland. And what's noticeable about our program is that we love genre fiction. We completely embrace genre fiction. So that's science fiction fantasy, uh, YA versions of those. Plus, we also cover crime, horror, and uh, I teach a, a pretty unique module in writing for graphic fiction, so writing the scripts for comics and graphic novels, because obviously 10 years being a comics editor, it's one of the things I can talk about with some passing degree of authority. Um, so, yeah, so uh, the course is uh, – it's a, it's a creative writing master's for one year um, – but we put genre fiction at the heart of our program. Most MAs and MFAs, particularly in the US, I have to say, very snobby towards uh, genre fiction. If you want to write science fiction or fantasy, most MFAs in America won't let you. They will frown upon it. They won't. Some places they won't even let you write it at all. You have to do it on your own in your spare time. You're not allowed to bring it into class. You're not allowed to bring it to workshop, which I... It, it baffles me. It baffles me that people decide that somehow, you know, literary fiction or stories about middle class people going through divorces 
is somehow the only kind of writing that exists or is of merit or is of value. And it's saying all the books that people want to read, we're never going to talk about those ever again. And you can never aspire to write the sort of books that people might want to read. And it drives me crazy. I've been to writing conferences in America and the level of disdain for science fiction and fantasy is incredible. So when we were creating this course that I I lead now, this MA program, uh, back in 2009, one of the things we said is we are putting science fiction, fantasy, horror, crime, and comics at the heart of our program. They are what we're going to talk about. And as a consequence, we get, you know, a third of our students every year come from North America because they're saying, well, they won't let me write fantasy. I mean, they're... Don't get me wrong. There are plenty of people who teach on creative writing MFAs in the US who write science fiction and fantasy and who publish science fiction and fantasy, but there's not many classes where you're allowed to talk about it or allowed to actually talk about the craft of how you create great science fiction and what science fiction and fantasy is for, you know, the social consequence of great science fiction, uh, why that's important and why that defines it as a genre, um, the, the necessity to think about how magic works, what the rules are, what are the consequences of the fantasy world building that you can labor over and what, why genre is a brilliant metaphor for what's happening in the world today. It's how you can talk about, you know, what people care about, but in a context that, in a story that people still want to read, you know, so it's, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm very passionate about this and I get on my high horse quite easily. No, that's good. I, 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 I like the passion. I was curious. You you mentioned that a lot of people, a lot of the students come from North America to Scotland. Yeah. I was just curious, like, what do you need to know if you're a like an American or Canadian student and you want to study in Scotland? Is there, is there anything you should know about the just the practical uh, aspects of that? Um, well, um, I'm not the expert on that. Uh, our university has a very good international office that works with students coming from other countries because we get. I mean, this year our students are from South Africa, uh, Greece. Uh, three Germans, uh, we've had students from Luxembourg and Australia and Malaysia, as well as, uh, the United States and Canada, of course. Um, so we have an international office that helps students with that. Uh, the other thing that we do is we, uh, anybody who applies to our course from North America, we'll hook them up so they get to have a Skype chat with one of our current North American students who can tell them about the visa requirements and the sort of things that are involved in that about relocation elements of it. Um, the strange thing is for our students um, is that to do uh, an MA, even in another country, to move from North America to Scotland for a year of your life um, and our course fees, that's still cheaper than to do uh, a year on an MFA in most year, in most uh, North American institutions because the fees are that much lower. Bizarre, but true. Yeah, and it looks like a really nice campus, too. I was looking at some pictures of it. It looks like, is there like a UFO in the middle of campus or something? <laughs> uh, yeah, that'll be the Craig Lockhart campus. They have this, they have this huge lecture theater that looks like a big metal egg. It's like something out of the day the earth stood still. <laughs> I mean, it's just bizarre. Um, yeah, uh, uh, Britain does love its oddball architecture, I have to say. Um, the, the campus that we're on is the Merkiston campus and we've got uh, like a 14th century stone tower surrounded by these slightly ugly 1960s metal and glass buildings but you can't have everything um but no i mean our campus it's it's in uh it's in edinburgh which is a great city it's a it's a unesco city of literature 
uh, and our students are our current students are about to hand in their major projects, and then they've got the whole of August to spend at the Edinburgh Festival, going to comedy shows, going to the Edinburgh International Book Festival, and concerts and gigs, and so I mean it's a it's a it's just a wonderful city to work in, you know, home of Arthur Conan Doyle and Robert Louis Stevenson. The list goes on. Ian Rankin, J.K. Rowling, of course. Let's not forget Harry Potter. It's surprising the number of students who choose our course just because they want to, I'm not going to say stalk J.K. <laughs> Rowling, but they want to walk in the same streets as she walks in. Um, so, yeah. It, is, she, uh, is she seen in public in Edinburgh? Not that often, it has to be said. Uh, Ian Rankin, who's uh, he's been one of our guest speakers, uh, he tells this wonderful story. He was uh, in the Starbucks, which is along the road from us, um, with uh, his, I think, his American publicist, and they were having coffee with another writer called uh, Alexander McCall Smith, uh, Sandy McCall Smith. And at this point, I think J.K. Rowling was still writing Harry Potter 6 or 7. So she was sat over in the corner uh, having her coffee and busy scribbling on her manuscript. And then she went to the toilet, uh, went to the bathroom, and she just left the manuscript there on the table. Oh, jeez. And the U.S. publicist saw this and was just freaking out completely. Just like, oh, my God. And, and went over and stood guard next <laughs> next to the table until she came back from the bathroom. And J.K. Rowling was like, hello? So it's fine. It's you, on you go. There you go. And just went away again and just guarded the manuscript. And, of course, you know, it's Edinburgh. J.K. Rowling's like, yeah, no. Why would this be a problem? I'll just leave it here. Nobody's got to touch it. We just... Uh, it's a British thing. We have a lot of respect. We're like, oh, somebody's in their own space. We'll just let them go home with it. We're not going to shove a phone in their face and take their photo because, no, that would not be the British way. Have you have you heard uh, Douglas Adams' story about the biscuits in the train station? No, I haven't. Okay, so Douglas Adams is sitting on a train platform, and he's bought a package of biscuits, which we call cookies, I think, here. Mm-hmm. And... um and he's sitting there reading his newspaper, and there's a guy sitting next to him reading a newspaper. And the guy next to him suddenly reaches over and opens up Douglas Adams' package of biscuits and eats one. <laughs> and, and Douglas Adams is like, boy, this is really weird, but I, I don't know what to do. I don't even know how to respond to this. And he's like British and polite, doesn't know how to respond. He's like, well, maybe if I just eat one, that'll sort of send a signal. Like, no, these, these are my cookies, right? So he takes one and eats it. The other, other guy then like waits a couple moments, and he takes one and eats it. And they go through the whole package, just not saying anything, not looking at each other, just eating biscuit after biscuit. And then the guy gets up and folds his newspaper and walks off and gets on the train. And Douglas Adams thinks, wow, that was really strange. I don't even know what to make of that. And then his his train pulls in and he folds up his newspaper and notices that his package of biscuits is sitting in front of him. (laughs) And so he had been eating the other guy's biscuits the whole time. And the other guy was too polite to say anything about it. That is so very, very British. (laughs) And so he says, you know, that um, the funny thing about this story is that somewhere in the world, there's someone else with this same anecdote, but he doesn't have a punchline for his. You know, it's just this weird story about this guy who ate my biscuits. and I don't know why. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Particularly if the guy doesn't realize it was Douglas Adams was eating my biscuits. Yeah. <laughs> if, he, if, he, if he knew it was Douglas Adams eating his biscuits, he would have a better story. That yeah. Douglas Adams, he's a cookie thief. <laughs> yeah. Um, I want to say about this program, though, because you sent me the description of it, and mm-hmm. uh, Laura Lamb is also teaching there. And ever since that, I've just seen her name everywhere. It seems like she's really, um, you know, her name like I'm, her name is just popping up everywhere on all these lists of best books and things I've, I've been seeing. Oh, yeah. We're really lucky to have Laura. She um, 
uh, for anybody who doesn't know, Laura Lamb is a science fiction and fantasy author. Um, her first book was uh, was actually the first in a trilogy. Uh, the first book's called Pantomime, and it was a YA fantasy trilogy, uh, which were originally published by a small imprint called Strange Chemistry and then reprinted uh, last year by Pam McMillan. So there's three books in that series, Pantomime, Shadowplay, and Masquerade. Uh, and she won loads of awards and was shortlisted for a load of awards for the first book in the trilogy, Pantomime. And what's uh, very different about Pantomime is the fact that the, the lead character in that is an intersex character. So there's a, a degree of uh, gender fluidity going on there with the character. And she did that in a YA fantasy story. And I'm pretty sure that hadn't been done before. Certainly not as well as, as Laura did it. I mean, she did an amazing job with that, those three books. Um, and uh, now she's writing um, science fiction thrillers. So the first one of those published last year was called False Hearts uh, and was very successful. And it's just come out in paperback from Pam McMillan. And uh, instead of being like a trilogy, what she's writing is a series of standalone science fiction thrillers um, in the sort of a shared universe and a shared world called Pacifica, which is like a California of the future, effectively. Uh, so the second book of that is called Shattered Minds, and that's just been published in hardback. Um, so no, uh, Laura is absolutely a, a rising star, and if you haven't read any of her books, I can hardly, hardly recommend all of them, actually, because I think I have now read all of them, yeah. So, yeah, uh, False Arts is great, or Pantomime, if you want to go back to her first one. Um, but, yeah, she's uh, she's been great on the course because she's brought uh, – I'm getting a bit on in years now, sadly. So she's uh, she's reading everything that's coming out. She's completely current about what's going on, and she's really uh, pushed the course into new directions on things like uh, diversity, representation – own voices, a lot of issues that um, while we were talking about, we weren't really putting at the heart of our teaching and learning for students. And now they're completely uh, built into the course now. Um, we're challenging students to think, our writers, our student writers, to think about, okay, what can you do and what should you be doing with your writing, you know? Because it's that challenge between representation and diversity and to represent people who aren't seen in fiction and should you only write in your own lane? Should you only write your own experience? Or does that deny imagination? But equally, whose stories should you be telling at the same time? So it's quite an interesting debate. I mean, you know, it can turn into quite the Twitter storm at times. Um, but yeah, there's a, one of the things our students set up uh, this year. One of our modules is a, it's a hashtag. I think it's called Diversity Nook. And it's a, it's a, um, Basically, it's an online, it's a Twitter book group for people who want to be reading more diverse science fiction and fantasy stories. Um, so that came out of just, uh, some of the teaching that Laura's been doing with, with our classes. So one thing she's done for us, um, coming this September is, um, we're, uh, introducing a module devoted to writing YA fiction because it's an area that she's got a lot of depth and knowledge in. Uh, so that's starting actually in January. The module itself will start running. But it's one of the first modules specifically about writing YA genre fiction. And it's what a lot of our, our younger applicants and, and students want to do. You know, the people who are sort of 23, 24, 25, they want to write about the things they know, but they want to do it through the context of science fiction or fantasy. And they want to talk to, they want to tell the sort of stories they wish had been on bookshelves when they were 14 and 15 and 16 and to see themselves represented at that age in those stories in well-written 
you know, engrossing stories. So that's hopefully what the, the writing YA module is going to do for, for students on our course. Yeah, that sounds really, really great. I'm really jealous I can't go. I mean, or, you know, it's a little late for me, but. It's never too late. Never too our, late. <laughs> our, our, our oldest student so far was 68. All right. Well, I mean, for me, it's more a, a matter of, uh, you know, life, someone's life and money. podcast. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you could do a podcast anyway. <laughs> well, all right. Maybe, maybe I'll be, uh, broadcasting from Edinburgh sometime soon. Just think of the people you could interview. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I can get Jake. That's, that's my ticket to get JK Rowling finally as a guest on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Yeah. I'll think it's crossed. <laughs> Um, well, so, and David, I also wanted to ask you about, you uh, You said that you have a historical thriller you're working on now. You want to talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, actually, while we're doing this podcast, I'm spending a month in France uh, writing the, the first 20,000 words of, of uh, an historical thriller, which sounds like everybody listening to this must be hating my guts about now and thinking, <laughs> you utter sod, how did you get a month in France to write a book? It was a bit lucky, I have to say. It was very unexpected. Uh, it's the sort, normally it's poets and playwrights who get to come over and I'm staying in this place about an hour south of Paris. Uh, and normally it's poets and playwrights and artists who come to this community and, uh, get to spend time working on a project. So I applied and to my utter amazement, they said, yes, on you go. And I was like, okie dokie. Um, so yeah, so what I'm writing is an historical thriller. It's set in Florence, Italy in 1536, 1537. So it's late Renaissance. And it's, um, it's all to do with the, a conspiracy to assassinate a Medici duke who runs the city at that point in time. So it's based on real events, but with some fictional characters inserted into it. Um, and the sort of one of the points uh, of difference for the book that I'm writing is that my detective, he's uh, he's a gay man at a time and a place in history where to be uh, homosexual was uh, a crime and was punishable by anything from public humiliation to flogging to execution. It was not unknown at that point in time uh, and in that place in Florence in the late Renaissance that if you were convicted of, of uh, homosexual practices, uh, in some cases they would hang somebody from the gates of the prison, they would set fire to their corpse, and then they would throw the ashes into the river Arno so that there could be no record of this person ever left, so they could not be buried in consecrated ground. That's how hardcore uh, it could be about anybody who did not conform to what were perceived to be society's norms or certainly to the laws of society. So my character is a, he's actually a, a sort of police detective or it's equivalent in the period. And so he's a gay man living at a time where as anybody finds out uh, who it is that he falls in love with and who it is that he sleeps with, it's, it, you know, it could be the end of him. It could destroy him completely. And the strange thing is when I was doing research for this book, and I've done a lot of research for this book, there's actually, there's a lot of um, gay detectives in mystery fiction have emerged in the last 60 years or so. But most of them are in contemporary settings, uh, gay or lesbian or, or bisexual or queer or, you know, any of the other um, uh, areas on the, on the, on the spectrum of sexuality uh, that people occupy. So there's a lot of, those sorts of characters that you'll see as sleuths in mystery stories. 
but there's almost none before like Queen Victoria's time. There's some Victorian examples, but there's almost nobody before sort of 1834. It's like gay people did not solve crimes. There were no queer sleuths <laughs> before Queen Victoria. They just simply didn't exist for some reason. Certainly not in published fiction at the moment, which I find, ah, uh, which I just find odd. It's, are we saying that gay people didn't exist in the past? Because they did plainly they did uh, history tells us that they did and yet it's like they've been they, they just don't appear in mystery stories set before a certain period in our recent history so uh yeah so my book is is attempting to start to redress that to make people think about you know what does sexuality mean in a particular context and what does that tell us about you know our lives today how different they are and yet how similar they are for some people that sounds really great do you have a title for that yet uh, the working title is Safer to be Feared. Uh, Safer to be Feared, because it's, it's a quote from uh, The Prince by Machiavelli, which is, it's, he, he argued, it was safer to be feared than to be loved. Wow. That sounds really, really cool. I'm really looking forward to that. Cool. Oh, well, uh, probably coming to a bookshop near you in uh, about three years' time at my current speed. <laughs> all right. I'll put, I'll put it on my calendar. Cool. Um, okay, so David, so we are all out of time. So do you have just any uh, any final thoughts or just anything you didn't get to get a chance to mention? Uh, no, no, no. Uh, I think that's about it. If anybody would like to find out more about the, the creative writing MA that I teach on with Laura Lamb, then uh, probably the quickest thing to do is to at me on Twitter. It's nice and simple. It's at David Bishop, all one word. I joined Twitter so early I got my own name. Hmm. Uh, but yeah, that's it. All right, great. Yeah, so we've been speaking with David Bishop about the book Thrill Power Overload. So David, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to David Bishop for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to Joshua Reeder, Anya Steny, Joao Duarte, Selby Miller, and Charles Muller, who all just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. I'd also like to thank Casper for sponsoring today's show. Remember that if you do decide to order a mattress, you should visit casper.com slash galaxy and use the promo code galaxy. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.